Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Scared to death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no heart, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm Robert. You're Robert. Sure. Okay. Hey, Robert. <laughs> I'm Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay, we almost at 150 episodes. So almost. that is pretty cool. Next week, 150. Uh, I have no announcements today uh, for, for anyone listening, but you have two of them. I do. I do have two of them. First, I just want to say thanks again, Crystal. <laughs> if you so are cool. a, a Robert or an Annabelle, you've already seen the reveal of my new notebook. Uh, thanks so much, Crystal, for making this and sending this in to me. I absolutely love it. It's awesome. All right. So... This month's okay. charity episode, charity. This is a charity episode. This month's charity announcement. Uh, we wanted to donate to the victims and their families of families of the recent mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde. And because we record in advance, dare I say that there might have been more since then. Uh, we knew it would be challenging to pick exactly where to send this money, and uh, we decided instead of picking one mass casualty to donate to the National Compassion Fund, whose mission is to give funds to the victims of mass casualty crimes, such as mass shootings and terrorist attacks. Uh, and, and the truth is that there's so many charities that pop up every time these awful things happen, and we were just yeah. looking for a way to spread the money around as fairly and evenly as mm -hmm. possible, if that's even such a thing to do in these scenarios. And so uh, the... The the uh, sorry the National Compassion Fund will do that for us, which is great. Uh, our donation amount is still to be determined as we record in advance, which you guys know, and so we just don't know at this moment. But if you'd like to learn more or donate yourself, it is the National Compassion Fund. Dot, I'm sorry, it is National Compassion. Dot org. I want to add that actual extra word in there, fund. <laughs> yeah. 
Not there. Not not real. Nationalcompassion.org. And then also, I have mm-hmm. this week's merch announcement. Yes. So look at me. It's all about me at the top of the show. All right. Uh, this week, we are telling you that if you are hearing this for the first time, it is time to go order your Volume 3 book. And actually, you'll have already heard this in ads, in previous episodes, and you'll have seen it on social media and on Patreon. But if you're hearing it for the first time, you need to hustle your booty on over to Bad Magic Merch. Dot com right now to get your volume three scared to death fan story book because they went on sale on July 12th and you're going to hear this episode uh, today on July 12th. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> oh, no, because well, I guess the episode comes out late. That's yeah, what I was yeah, thinking. Yeah, they, went yeah, on, yeah, yeah. they went on sale at noon Pacific today. Yeah. Uh, and the autographed copies may already be gone, but we're still suggesting that you go over and pre-order your Volume 3 book because if you don't pre-order it, we cannot guarantee that you'll have it in time for the spoopiest day of the year, Halloween. So it's the, this is the only way to make sure you get it in time to have those tales to tell around the campfire on Halloween. And then also... We did a reprint of Volume 1 and Volume 2, and we suggest also pre-ordering those because it's a limited quantity. So get in there, pre-order them, get your books, and get ready to celebrate Halloween because it's going to happen faster than we know. And the announcement, uh, if um, I get like, if you're irritated, it's coming, <clears throat> excuse me, late, but uh, follow us on socials, please, uh, at Scared to Death Podcast, Instagram and Facebook. You know, we make sure to get these, you know, with our recording schedule sometimes kind of being all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, admittedly, sometimes things get missed, and in the helter skelter life we lead of trying to be business owners and balance family and actually be, uh, you know, content creators, yeah. it's been a little chaotic lately. But um, if uh, if you follow us on socials, then you know you'll you'll get these announcements in plenty of time. Yes, and, and, that's and at Scared to Death Podcast. Instagram and Facebook. Exactly. Yeah. And and we are uh, putting our own ad into all the past episodes. So you should have heard this prior to just this moment. Yeah. Yeah. So apologies. But there it is. It's a great book with another beautiful cover and art uh, from Logan. And just, again, another year of amazing mm-hmm. spoopy tales. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Speaking of spoopy tales, uh, how many do you have for us today? Three. Oh, three. Three. Now, I have a big episode this week. Uh, my first story... A possible sighting of a man in a window, uh, a haunted house tale, but is it the house or is it the occupants is what you're going to wonder by you, the time you get to the end of the tale. And then in my second story, the hat man is back. Okay. A little jerk. I, I hate him so much. I was so scared last night doing this story. Yeah, you were. You had to close down all the blinds. I had to close all the blinds, go sit by Dan, close the blinds behind Dan. I was uncomfortable. He kept teasing me and I did not care for it. And then my third one is less of a story and more of just uh, an update that somebody sent in actually to Time Suck about a photograph that they had taken oh, yeah. that mm-hmm. Dan shared with me that I just said like, well, there's zero way that we cannot not share this on Scared to Death. It yeah, is it's so pretty weird. disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty concrete, I would mm, say. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll discuss. Yeah, exactly. If If the situation is as the person described it when they sent it in. It seems to be like, you know, very good proof of the paranormal. Obviously, the skeptic in me always holds up the possibility of like, um, you know, could they be lying? I don't see why they would. I, I don't get that vibe at all. Um, but man, if if they're, if the picture is what they say the picture is, yeek. Well, and I, I would just say this also, like I just, they're not even fans of Scared to Death. So like they sent it into Time Suck. They yeah. hardly listened to Scared to Death. Yeah. So they weren't even trying to like get on the show. Nope. There was just no motivation for exactly. that not to be real. Yep, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why they would have uh, sent it in if it wasn't real. Yeah, why would you go that far? Um, I have my normal two stories. The first is a story of East Bethany, New York's Rolling Hills Asylum. 
I'll cover its history, haunted lore, and a more detailed and disturbing encounter tale involving a former employee and then patient. And then we go uh, one state over and a couple hundred years back into the past to tell the story of Elizabeth Knapp's supposed demonic possession in Groton, Massachusetts in 1671 and 1672. Is that pretty famous? I've, that name feels... Groton? No, Knapp's? Uh, Elizabeth Knapp? Uh, not to me. Oh, so okay. I don't know. JK. Uh, to, it, it, this occur, occurred two decades before the Salem witch trials. Okay. I mean, if you're a historical, you know, big uh, Salem witch trial kind of, you know, student no. history, then th- th- there is like speculation that, you know, this is one of the uh, kind of uh, stories that may have gotten a little bit of hysteria, gotten people a little bit worked up that may have led to the Salem witch trials. Right. So sometimes it's connected with the Salem witch trials in a weird way. Um but yeah, I, I had not heard of it. Okay, okay. I do want to show off my socks, but uh, <laughs> I have on a dress, and someone once told me in an email, like, hey, just put the blanket on before you show off the socks. I was there like, you go. oh, yeah, what a genius you are. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these cute little llamas. Oh, those are cute. They are so cute. My friend, Abby. Thank you, Abby. Much appreciated. I wore her Frida Kahlo socks in my uh, bonus episode the other day. Mm-hmm. So thanks. Yeah, thanks, Abby. And now, uh, away from cuteness and into horror, we're going to go to the realm of haunted asylums again this week. Uh, No surprise that of all the places in the world, it seems that most of the ones that report by far the most paranormal activity are the places where massive amounts of people have suffered. If this is the case, then Rolling Hills Asylum, located in East Bethany, New York, certainly fits that bill. Originally, like most asylums, it opened with the best of intentions— On December 4th, 1826, the Genesee County Board of Supervisors met in Bethany for the purpose of establishing a county poorhouse to be called the Genesee County Poor Farm. In the early 19th century, the so-called poorhouse was a staple of civic life in America, a place where public funds would be used to provide food and lodgings for people who had fallen on hard times. Everyone from widows to orphans, physically, uh, physically disabled people, the mentally ill, and others would be able to find a safe place of refuge. Later on, the Rolling Hills Asylum would become anything but that. The townspeople selected a brick building in the middle of a very, uh, the very small community of East Bethany, originally a stagecoach tavern, located near the corner of the Bethany Center Road and Raymond Road, as it represented the geographical center of the county. The location seems to reflect the good intentions of the asylum's founding. There was clearly no desire to hide society's less fortunate people in some remote location. Instead, the founders wanted to include them in everyday life. Include them as part of a community. An official notice appeared in Bethany's local newspaper, the People's Press, on December 9, 1826. Notice is hereby given that the Genesee County Poorhouse will be ready for the reception of paupers on the first day of January 1827. The overseers of the poor of the several towns of the county of Genesee are requested, in all cases of removal of paupers to the county poorhouse, to send with them their clothing, beds, bedding, and such other articles belonging to the paupers as may be necessary and useful to them. And pauper, not a commonly used word today, uh, just means a recipient of government relief and or public charity, like a prince and a pauper, mm-hmm. uh, the haves and the have-nots. Uh, of the people eligible for assistance were habitual drunkards, quote, lunatics due to old age or loss of reason, <laughs> paupers, disabled people, or vagrants. The Genesee County Poor Farm was a self-sufficient working farm in woods, spanning over 200 acres, providing food and fuel for not only themselves, but enough to sell the surplus as well. Thus, the actual cost to care for each person was low, just over a dollar per week per resident back in 1871. Residents who were physically able to work on the farm uh, would, would do so and build wares to sell in the town. 
They raised pigs, horses, chickens, and ducks, cultivated vegetables and fruits, which they canned and made into jellies and preserves. There was even a wood shop where they made coffins to sell to local mortuaries. Seemed like a happy enough place, a place where people who had little could go live a somewhat comfortable life. And at the end of their lives, the county would bury those who had no family. It is estimated that the remains of almost 2,000 people may lie under the ground around the Rolling Hills Asylum. And perhaps not all of them are happy with their final resting place. Time now for the tale of Underneath the Asylum. One former resident, now believed to be a restless soul who haunts the grounds, was a man named Roy. Roy was the son of a prominent banker in New York. He was born with extreme gigantism, a physical deformity that left his face deformed, his hands and feet grossly oversized, and he grew to well over seven feet tall. <sighs> Due to the social pressures of the time, Roy was sadly sent to live at the asylum because his family considered him to be an embarrassment. He was brought to the asylum when he was 12 and would live there for half a century, dying there at the age of 62. He was said to have loved opera music and was known in the asylum as a kind, gentle-hearted man. And now today, numerous visitors have claimed to see his hulking shadow still lurking throughout the building. One visitor reported a story about running into a rat in the infirmary about two months after moving into Rolling Hills. A rat that terrified her, and her screams seems to have possibly alerted the ghost of Roy to the rat's presence. The very next day after seeing the rat screaming and running away in terror, she found what appeared to her to be the same rat, dead on the stairs, blood oozing from its mouth as if its neck had been broken. On the wall above the rat was a giant bloody handprint. Did Roy kill the rat for her? Other spirits thought to haunt the asylum have not been reported to be as eager to help as Roy. They are not the ghosts of people rumored to have been gentle and kind in life, and their spirits are not gentle and kind in death. One of the nurses in the infirmary, Nurse Emmy, was known primarily for her cruelty. She was feared by the inmates and staff and was even rumored to have performed satanic rituals and black magic on the residents. Visitors report that Nurse Emmy still walks the halls of Rolling Hills as an ominous shadowy apparition that brings with it a sense of dread and cold. Visitors often hear it coming with a cackle-like laugh originating from the infirmary. Hopefully laughing is all that she's up to, or maybe her spirit killed the rat, and maybe not to protect anyone. Another paranormal hotspot in the asylum is a room known only as Hattie's Room. Located on the first floor of the East Wing, this room has captured voice recordings of an elderly woman yelling, Hello! It's believed that this is the voice of a former patient named Hattie, who was blind, and used to yell hello all day and night to get the attention of the staff and nurses. Moving upwards in the building, the second floor men's dormitory is referred to as the Shadow Hallway, a fitting name since this is a hall where visitors often see numerous shadowy figures moving about. They walk in and out of doorways, across halls, peek out from behind doors, and even sometimes are seen crawling across the floor. The psych ward and solitary confinement locations in the asylum are where some of the most sinister spirits apparently live. Iron brackets protrude out of the cement walls of a small room in the basement, which is believed to have once been used to shackle unruly inmates, sometimes used by abusive staff to torture them. Visitors have reported hearing the phrase, I'm coming to lock you up echoing throughout the room. It's thought that this comes from either the staff who made these threats on a daily basis or that the inmates would repeat the last words they heard from their family members before being forced into rolling hills. The most haunted room, no surprises here, is the morgue. In this room, there's a large embalming table, two large refrigerators, and a huge steel sink. The morgue is rife with paranormal activity to this day, such as items being moved, disembodied voices, and a few visitors have even been reported uh, have even reported being shoved down under the cold tile floor. In 1974, due to a plethora of reasons, 
including the lack of water and wheelchair ramps pitched to open stairwells, the Rolling Hills Asylum shut its doors for the last time as a county facility, and the property sat empty for over 10 years. Today, it's open as a facility to commemorate those who live there and potentially to experience some hauntings yourself. Due to the severity of the hauntings, some would later wonder, were all the people sent to Rolling Hills for supposedly being insane actually mentally ill? Numerous residents certainly were, but others... Were they just sent away by family members who didn't want them, or just wanted to hide them away for perhaps nefarious reasons? After more and more shadowy ghosts started to appear, were some of the residents people the asylum drove insane? One former resident's story might fall into this latter category. Leroy was a cook at the asylum for many years, before he found himself among the number of people he was supposed to be looking after. One of his grandnieces would later find his journal among the few possessions that he left behind when he passed away. She posted passages from it online, hoping she could figure out, once and for all, what happened to her great-uncle. Leroy's story begins with a journal entry, written October 2, 1965. Strange day today. Woke up this morning and headed over to the kitchen to start prep work. Last week, they told me they were starting a new program where some of the easier inmates, the ones whose treatments were working, would be able to help out in the kitchen. Of course, I was nervous as hell. We have knives in here, sharp things of all kinds, big meat grinders, walk-in freezers where you can get trapped if you're not careful. But the admins reassured me that nothing was going to happen. We'd lock up all the knives and dangerous tools before the patients arrived. This meant that I had to arrive early to pre-cut everything. Wasn't thrilled about it, but there wasn't much I could do. I think they're doing this as a result of some of the rumors around here. Nurses saying patients are getting antsy, that they want to know what life outside is like. I think that's par for the course. No one wants to be in here. But the nurses seem to think it's getting worse these last couple of months. So, the programs. New jobs for people, more books, stuff like that. Keeps minds and bodies occupied. I got to the kitchen and began to do prep work for the day. I was alone, just the way I like it. I can get more done that way. And I like the morning before the treatments start because there's less commotion, less screaming and shouting and confusion. I started deboning a big hunk of pork and the minutes were flying by. Until I went to pick up my paring knife and it was gone. I immediately thought that I'd made some kind of mistake. Maybe the longer hours were getting to me. I looked all around in the sinks, the counters, under the stoves, even the walk-in freezer. Nothing. That was strange, I thought. I wondered if someone could have snuck in, but the door to the kitchen was locked and I'd been under strict orders not to open it until 11 when the patient showed up to help. I wondered if I should report it missing, but I decided against it. I couldn't have them take that out of my paycheck and since things had been pretty chaotic for a couple of weeks, I thought maybe it was something that could get me to let go, or that would get me let go. I'm sure I'll find the knife in a couple days, and this will all blow over. The next entry was dated three weeks later, October 22, 1965. Things here are crazier than ever, no pun intended. Apparently the nurses' rumors were right. Seems like people are really starting to feel cooped up. Maybe it's the winter? I've always tried to see them as people, not patients, and I feel for them. It's got to be a shame to be stuck inside all the time, especially when it's cold out. But I've been here for two winters and haven't seen anything like this. For one, the patients don't act restless. It's not like that. If I heard them screaming or shouting, I'd understand that. And God knows there's been plenty of that in my time here. Now, it's, it's something else. Something more agitated. One patient, the nurses call him the grumbler because he doesn't do much more than grumble, used to have this constantly sedated look in his eyes. A nurse told me that he'd tried to drive his family's car off the road and into a lake with all of them in it but he gotten stuck in the mud and just ranted and raved until the authorities came to take him away. Since then, he's mostly sat in this spot in the atrium. 
You can tell, you can't tell if he's watching TV or not. He's that sedated. But the other day, I went by because I noticed he hadn't taken anything for lunch and he looked at me. And I can't describe the look in his eyes, but it was somehow intelligent. Like when you see a wild cat watching you from the bushes. It isn't all the patients, but I've been noticing more and more of them experiencing strange little changes. Some nurses say that their treatments aren't working. But if their treatments aren't working, wouldn't they go back to random raving like they had been? This is different somehow. It's almost like they woke up and they're trying to figure out where they are before making any moves. I know that sounds ridiculous. I never thought I was afraid of them, but maybe this proves I am. Maybe I'm just spooked because of the knife thing. Still hasn't turned up. The next entry was dated almost two weeks later, November 1st, 1965. Finally, some good news. Looking back at my old entries, I can see just how freaked out I was over the last couple weeks. I know I was on edge too. I can still feel it in my shoulders. And I've been bracing for a hit every time I go onto the asylum's grounds. I think what was getting to me is this tense atmosphere. Ordinarily, when patients are upset or confused, they shout and yell. But for the past couple weeks, it's been almost dead silence. Even the patients that normally can't stop babbling. Some of the nurses were saying that it's closer to the full moon, but I think that's a silly superstition. Some of the other nurses were saying it's about to, the about to be the 100th year anniversary of this big, massive riot that took place here. And maybe the patients know that. But how would they know that? Some of them barely even know their names. This is what Sarah, the young nurse, was telling me. I'll say now that I was talking to her for so long because she's pretty cute. Long hair, heart-shaped face. Just a real sweetheart in general, so I wanted to hear her out. Anyway, apparently back then, there was a big riot among some of the patients. They got a couple nurses on their side to help fill their pills with placebos so they could be alert enough to make an escape. Newly alert, they started stockpiling some things that would come in handy. Things to pick locks, that sort of stuff. But then apparently one of the doctors found out about it because some of the medication didn't look right. And he tested it and figured out what was going on. And then, the patients who had just been planning their escapes, they just disappeared. I asked Sarah if maybe they were moved to another facility, someplace they couldn't escape from as easily. And she just shrugged. Maybe, she said. Or maybe they were brought to the third wing. I'd never heard of the third wing before. As far as I know, there are two main wings, and that's all there's ever been. She glanced up at me. The third wing's in the basement. It's closed off now, but maybe back then... She trailed off. So they were kept locked up here? I frowned. That's sad, but not all that different from being a patient here normally. Her lower lip trembled, and I suddenly wondered if she'd seen more than I had these past couple of weeks. If something bad had happened to her with the patient. She was so small, could be easily overpowered. The thought made me angry. I wanted to protect her, but I wasn't sure what was going on. No, she said quietly. Patients who go to the third wing, they, uh, they never come back. She lowered her voice so it was barely a whisper. I heard they took the nurses there too. Nurses who had been corrupted by their association with the patients. A couple minutes later, Sarah's supervisor came and told her she needed to start changing the bedpans. I felt bad for her. She was young and pretty, stuck in a place like this, around all these crazy people and these crazy stories, doing the kind of work she was doing. I also thought, even if those patients and nurses had been brought to the third wing all those years ago, they were gone now. Some parts of this place's history were terrible, but... We were past that now, weren't we? Luckily, this afternoon, the staff got called in and one of the doctors told us that he figured out what had been going on. Apparently, he said, there's been mold growing in the cellar. Some workmen discovered it the other day. It's a toxic kind of mold. They can have all kinds of side effects in people, mostly forgetfulness, uh, lethargy, and paranoia. And he said that there's no way of knowing how it interacts with patients on medication. So that's why the patients have probably been acting so weird. I saw Sarah in the meeting, and I turned her with a big smile, trying to communicate that everything was going to be worked out. 
but she didn't meet my eyes. Maybe something's going on in her personal life. I don't know. I'm just glad this whole situation is going to be fixed once and for all. Oh, and still no knife. Maybe I just lost it. Hastily scribbled, Leroy's last entry will be dated November 6th, 1965, five days after the previous entry. It's so much worse than everyone thought. I'm writing this from outside the shed. I don't know how long it'll take them to find me. I don't know if what I saw was real, but I hope to God it's not. Sarah was right. She was so right. I I wish she hadn't been. I go to work this morning and was told it would be my job to take the cleaners down to the cellar to get rid of the mold. I should have wondered then. I should have wondered why it was me. If I'd been getting too close to the answer. But I didn't wonder. I I just did as they asked. Two men arrived in a blue van around noon. I didn't recognize the logo. Weird for a small town with only one of each service. But I figured maybe the asylum had contracted them from out of town. I met them outside and we proceeded down into the cellar. I'd been in that cellar before to grab odds and ends. But this time something was different. It was a rank, deep smell coming from the very back. With the cleaners trailing behind me, I turned on my flashlight and began to venture down the corridor to the back where I'd always been told the morgue was. Pushing my way past curtains of cobwebs, I walked deeper and deeper into the darkness, the smell getting worse with each step. I felt a spider skitter across my skin and coughed as spiderwebs brushed my mouth. It was so distracting that I didn't notice the rats. Just a couple flitting around my feet. There was always a couple of rats down here, and I called back, Sorry about this, guys, but we're usually better about calling the exterminators. No problem. We've seen it before. There were more rats than I expected, though. I could feel their warmth, and over and over as I stepped forward, I'd feel my shoe kick something small and soft. large part of me wanted to go back to say this was too much for me, but another part said no. This was my job, and I'd never have the respect of any of the other guys if I shirked my responsibilities because I was scared of a couple rats. Up ahead, I noticed a small gap in the left side of the tunnel. The rats were pouring out of this space and into the large corridor where I was standing. This is it, I said. After the mold, I guess this is the next item on our to-do list. No answer. I spun around. The tunnel was completely empty. Where had they gone? The tunnel seemed to stare back at me wide and gaping. There were no other doors that I could see, no place for the other guys to split off. I had no idea what was happening. And then I started to hear it. Voices in the tunnel, just ahead of me, murmuring something. I thought they might have somehow gone ahead of me when I was brushing the cobwebs off or kicking aside the rats, even though that seemed impossible. Or maybe I'd come into contact with the mold and, and, and miss something. That's what I thought at the time. I wish I'd just simply turned around, then I might be free right now. But another part of me knows that I'd never be free. They'd never let me leave. They'd never let anyone leave, not really. I stepped forward, shining my flashlight over the floor, making sure I didn't slip on the thick layer of sludge. At the end of the hallway was a door with a sign that said, Morgue. And though I knew that the morgue hadn't been used in years, the door was slightly ajar. No cobwebs crossed the opening. It had been open recently. The murmuring was louder now, just a low hum of indistinguishable voices. Hello? I called, pushing it open. The rusty creak echoed back down through the corridor and I could hear rats scurrying around behind me. As soon as I stepped inside, the murmurs stopped. The morgue was empty. No men, just the gurneys. Stained sink in one corner couple of crumbling boxes and my knife it lay on the floor and looked covered in blood before my mind was really able to contemplate what may have happened with the knife my eyes were drawn to the mold so much mold it covered the walls stretching as high as the ceiling where it left a single circular patch in the center that was clean but still decaying chipped pieces of plaster and paint crumbling onto the floor below how could they keep people living right above this I thought it was inhumane it was suddenly I heard a loud wheeze I spun around expecting the men to have appeared, but I was alone. (sighs) 
Under the beam of my flashlight, the mold seemed to ripple. And then I realized that the sounds I've been hearing, including the sound of breathing, was coming from inside the mold. Without thinking about it, I walked over and grabbed that knife, raised my hand up, and slashed through the mold, tearing away chunks of wet, green mush. The blade hit something hard. I shined my flashlight, which was now flickering badly as though we were about to go out, down and gasped. I'd uncovered four human toes. The fifth was missing, a rotting hole where the pinky should have been. The four toes were attached to the remains of a foot. Sick to my stomach, I dropped the knife, grabbed another handful of mold, a shin. Then I uncovered a full leg, a torso, all of it rotting. On the rotting flesh was a symbol I recognized, the tattoo of an anchor. I remembered that tattoo from a patient who'd been rehomed a few years previously, a man who'd been in the Navy. When he'd been brought in, I remember thinking that he was so lucid before the meds took hold and he turned into a shell of his former self, that there was something in his gaze that still retained their original lucidity until he vanished about a month ago. Did he bring the knife down here? Did he somehow figure out what was going on? I stumbled away and tried not to throw up. The room was covered in mold. How many more bodies were hiding in the walls? How many people had been too much trouble, maybe sent to the third wing to be buried in the building itself, just like Sarah had said? Bang! The door swung shut behind me. I scrambled over it and pounded on it with my hands, but it wouldn't budge. Then I heard it from behind me. Help. Help us. Help us. I looked at the mold. It was now rippling like the hands were extending towards me, and there was more of them than I could ever expect. Help us. My flashlight died. A moment later, I, I passed out. When I woke up next, I was in a room with doctors. None of them were doctors I'd recognized. I could never remember seeing a single one of them before today, except for the two men who'd come as the cleaners for the mold. But now they were wearing white coats. They told me the mold had triggered some kind of latent condition in my brain, and that I would have to stay here until I recovered. That anything I had seen was a hallucination. I don't believe them. I know this place inside and out, so I was able to untie myself and slip out to a nearby shed where I'm right now. It's almost morning. Someone soon will be doing a bed check, and they'll find out that I'm missing. I don't know how I'm going to completely get off the grounds. But I know I'm not going to end up in that third wing, the wing for people who get a little too close to the truth. The doctors may have thought they could just kill anyone who became too much of a bother, but I'm going to get out of here. I have to. That would be the last entry of the journal. All of Leroy's medical files, all of his other possessions, they were destroyed. It just happened that the journal was small enough to be hidden in a pair of shoes that got sent back to his house, along with a letter saying that he'd had a psychotic break and would be entering the asylum as a patient. Guess no one on staff bothered to read his entries. His grandniece would only find it years after she died, or he died, at the age of 57, after he'd spent over 10 years in the asylum as a patient. By the time she found it, the facility had long since shut down. There was nothing she could do to seek justice for her uncle. She only had these entries, and she realized that they sound crazy. Before sharing this information online, she wondered for years if her great uncle had truly been kept there against his will, or if the journal was the ravings of a madman. How did he die, really? Where was he buried? Somewhere on the grounds of the Rolling Hills Asylum? Maybe down in the third wing? Did he become part of the strange mold he wrote of? Was the voice of his suffering spirit added to the chorus of souls already trapped there? Weird. Mm-hmm. But also so spoopy. <laughs> I love that tale. I love that. Love that. Love that. It was so creepy. Yeah, yeah. When I was scribbling notes, I was like, I assumed that when he went down to that cellar, that the smell was rotting bodies. So mm -hmm. then when you when it was like, oh, there's mold everywhere. I mean, I never thought of like mold taking over bodies, but I don't see why it couldn't. Right. Right. I mean, because it can be, I mean, ugh, mold is so gross. But when you think about 
The um, did you ever do that experiment in kindergarten or first grade where you with take with well, take a slice of bread and everybody like adds different like in my grade school it was like everybody got a slice of bread in a clear plastic Ziploc baggie and then it was like you know you could add water not add water you could hang your bread in the sunlight or not like there was we didn't, we didn't excuse do, me we didn't do experiments in my school <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> Well, at my school, we did. Huh? And there was like, I mean, it was such a weird thing looking back on it. But there'd be pieces of bread hung all over the classroom. But it was an experiment to see like, where and how does mold grow was the huh. sort of, you know, the 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 crux of it. And so it, some pieces would be completely overtaken with mold. Other pieces, you know, just huh. dried out because there was, you, I chose not to put water in mine or, you know, like all these different things. So thinking- That, that wouldn't make people sick? I guess that kind of mold doesn't make you sick. Like if you don't eat it, it's not going to like well, and it's mess con- up the air, right? Well, no, it's contained in a Ziploc bag. Oh, that's bag. right. It's right in a Ziploc bag. Okay, it, gotcha. They're not just random pieces of bread hanging from the ceiling. Right, right. Filling the room with mold. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the experiment went on for what? One week, two weeks uh, yeah. max. But when you think about the way that it can overtake just a small piece of bread and that whole bread becomes mold- I mean, when you think about like a wall covered in mold, that's a real thing or like a moss, right? Like we think about like rocks covered in like a Mm -hmm. mossy. So I just never think about mold growing on bodies, but like why couldn't that happen in a dark, damp area? So this is just like undulating, breathing, mossy, moldy wall that like, you know, you can't, you go to like wipe it away and then you find a toe. It reminds me of it. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm going to try and so Google it really quick. I think it's called Project 91. It was a Netflix horror kind of sci-fi uh, show I watched. Oh, man. Was that it? Netflix? No, it's not, not it. But Mold was central to the Archive 81. Archive 81. Okay, so I Project 91. 91. You're okay. very close. Archive 81. Yeah, it was a, it's classified as a thriller, I guess. But... um. Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever had seen like mold is a central piece of it was like this weird mold that was tied to some occult ritual and that like by praying along I don't know they found this like, book tied to it and mm-hmm. it's like uh it, like like basically the mold could create some kind of opening to another world where these okay. demony things were but I was like oh that's interesting I, that I mean very a- different kind of story but I was it's the only other story I can think of where mold is a, a key component I I think that's a a pretty cool concept to explore in like the horror thriller genre because we've all seen mold, right? Mm-hmm. We, we've all had a piece of fruit go bad. Yeah. So there's that understanding of like what it is and we know that it can spread and grow. It's associated with decay and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of darker things. And we know that it's a living, breathing organism, mm-hmm. right? So then for it to like have a pulse yeah. in a bigger way, it makes me think of like a sea documentaries that you'll watch where like the seafloor undulates mm-hmm, with you mm-hmm. know different kinds of like grasses and seaweeds that kind of vibe of moving like that that's what I was thinking about with this moldy wall was yeah, and like, then hands coming out Wah! of it body parts inside of it yeah that'd be so great in a um, I was gonna say in a whorehouse what? <laughs> in a horror house in a horror house in a house of horrors <laughs> in a haunted house like a, yeah. a one that you go to for fun you know mm-hmm. uh, an attraction uh if it was the kind of haunted house where you're allowed to touch things, because a lot of times you're not allowed to. Oh, yeah. But if you could touch things, if you have this like very Ooh, like yeah. soft wall and then, you know, and then it got like a little like wet and mushy and then Spongy. a hand came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this was really good. Okay, good. I, I have a few pictures. Um, the first is just a picture of Rolling Hills Asylum. Okay, yeah, like exactly what I think. I mean, honestly, it looks more like a schoolhouse than an asylum. Yeah, it's, it's not as big as like... Um, 
Oh, and now I'm trying to think. Um, the Kirk Kirkbride Kirkbride Asylums, I think I think is what they were called. It was like a style of asylum, um, very common in the 19th century. Now I have to. No one's going to be able to see your phone. I, I, so you're I, just doing that for yourself. I, no, I, I'm making sure that I got Selfish. Kirkbride. Kirk, I was right. I just I don't want to give from false information. So I'm saving people emails. I'm just teasing. Yeah, the Kirkbride Kirkbride plan, the way the wings kind of come out. It's like a little oh yeah, smaller like a central version. and then like a mm-hmm, yeah. like spires coming out from mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this next one. Creepy, creepy pick of, of a hallway inside the asylum. That feels staged. I, yeah, I think they do. They do like haunted tours. Okay, so it is staged. But I'm like, nice touch with the baby stroller. Mm-hmm. Actually, you did say early on that they do haunted tours now. So yeah, that is that would make sense. Uh, so and, and they've done a good job with the way they set this place up. No, there's another picture, uh, creepy picture taken inside the asylum. Yeah, with the wheelchair at the end of the hallway. Uh-huh. Just those nice little touches uh-huh. to make it a little more disturbing. And then one last pick is just, uh, you know, again, a, a room set up for a tour of the asylum, but they have that, uh, the valet. Uh, yeah, the va- that, that suit that you would wear at that time that maybe the doctors working there would wear. Mm-hmm. And that little, like, uh, some infirmary. Yeek. Man. These, pl- like, these places just, um... How heavy they feel just yeah. with like uh, the stone walls. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that plaster is called for the interior walls, but it just like everything just feels thick and sound deadening and mm-hmm. heavy and just mm-hmm. kind of um, oppressive almost. Well, yeah. It's not light and airy and stylish and, you know, like it would make you feel like good to stay there. Right. It's just because well, there was a shift at some point. Yeah. From like that, like heavy institutionalism to like, oh, wait, these people need sunlight and mm-hmm. an attempt to make it more humane. And- yep. And some of the Kirkbride plans, that was their goal, was to create more natural light and mm-hmm. you know more windows and airflow and all that. A, a lot of them ended up being have a pretty creepy vibe to them as well. Right. But well, that especially is just like, who's going to get well in a place like that? I know. Well, it's inherently a creepy, terrible idea to just like lock people up. And I know. It's like, what else do you do? You know, I know. In, in previous areas of history, they didn't have the expertise to help anyone. Well, and even now, it's yeah. like... Uh, I don't think that every person who enters into those fields of mental health are necessarily the right kind of people to be dealing with that. Not everyone's intentions are pure. And I think it's why— Some people like control of others. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's why as a society we actually still have such a stigma around mental health because somewhere deep inside of us is this fear that we're just going to get shipped off. Yeah, you know that that our families aren't going to love us. That we're, you know, it's like, yeah, because because that did happen in the past, right? And how terrifying that once you're once you were labeled back then a quote unquote insane, mm-hmm. you know, your family could have you even when you were an adult. Mm-hmm. Pe- people could like come together like your parents still yeah. when you were a grown person and be like, nope, they need to be shipped away. They need to be taken well, if they had money and influence. Didn't matter what you say, the people would just come take you to this place. You did yeah. nothing wrong, and then once you're there, uh, it doesn't matter what you say because you're quote unquote crazy. Well, what do you think? How uh, do you think old pe- elderly people feel now when they get sent to mm, nursing homes? And I think that that's where that fear yeah. comes from. Not that there aren't plenty, plenty of well-run facilities, yeah. assisted living facilities. Like there's plenty of yes. scenarios in which it's not a lot of great like places. That. But when you think about like you know elderly people, they they remember yeah. the reality of those places yep. much more than we do because it was you know closer to their you know to their yeah. youth they could have a tangible thought mm-hmm. so it's like they, they are scared to be shipped off and i will say yeah. like just from my own experiences with all of my mental health struggles uh when i uh was you know really in the throes of my eating disorder and had attempted suicide their solution was mm-hmm. to just ship me off and if and and i say that not loosely and not yeah. lightly. And my mom knew the facility that they wanted to send me to. And she was like, oh, fuck no. Like in yeah. her mind, 
she already knew it was girl interrupted. Like she was not yeah. having it. And and thank God I had an advocate yep. who we didn't have the money. So it wasn't yeah. like she was buying my way out of it, but she cried and begged and pleaded and said like, I will take her to every appointment. I will do this. I will do that. You know, talk to her boss who was like, you take all the time off you need. I mean, how lucky. Because otherwise mm-hmm. I very easily after my 72 hour hold would have been shipped off to, to a place that was meant to be for young people. Right. But I never, I met people who came out of that place that were like, uh-uh. Yeah, that's like so sick. you avoided it. Because some people, you know, some of those facilities are so good. Yeah, but it would have been so just, helpful to me but, to have a good place to go to. Mm-hmm, but the p- potential for uh, abuse is so mm-hmm, great because mm-hmm. the, the population there is so defenseless. Yeah. And yeah. then a lot of times once you're in, even when your family, my understanding is that even when it's done with the best of intentions, once you are in, mm-hmm. getting someone out is outrageously difficult. Yeah, man. Yeah, wild stuff. All right. Not cool, but definitely interesting. (laughs) Uh, Are you ready to head east over to Massachusetts and back to the time of witch trials? I really loved that story. We haven't had a good, good. like, haunted hospital asylum. Yeah, we haven't in a while. No, that was great. Good job. Um, Yeah, we're going to cover an old claim of demonic possession. But first, time for our in-between story sponsor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are the things that weigh you down on a day-to-day basis? What kind of stress are you holding on to? Do you spend much of your day going over things in your brain over and over until they are so distracting it affects your mental health? Well, don't worry. You're not alone. We all carry different stressors, some big, some small. When we keep things bottled up, the results can be negative. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest without fear or judgment. It's a place to work through what is heavy on your mind and heart so that you can feel lighter and happier. I'm always holding on to something. It's the way my anxious brain works. I'm continually worried that I've done something wrong, that I've hurt the feelings of someone I love, and that I have let someone down. I'm stressed that I'm not being a good enough mom or wife. I panic that our life will implode at any given moment and it'll all be my fault. Thankfully, I have an amazing therapist who helps me talk through each of these scenarios. After each and every appointment, I feel lighter, happier, and more capable of showing up as my most authentic self. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash scared to death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scared to death. Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Factors Never Frozen, Always Fresh Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen. I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, the summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time. Head to factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 and use code scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code scared to death 50 at factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Break. Thanks for listening to those deals. A little bit of setup on this one, um, not as much as the last story. Elizabeth Knapp was a Puritan girl from Groton, Massachusetts. Groton's located 32 miles northwest of Boston and was once part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Elizabeth was born and raised there, living there from April 21st, 1655 to 1720. She was the daughter of farmer James Knapp and Elizabeth Warren Knapp. Both of her parents were English immigrants who first lived in Watertown, eight miles west of Boston, and then moved to Groton. Elizabeth lived what seemed to be a perfectly normal life until she turned 16 and began exhibiting symptoms of what various locals claimed to be convinced was severe demonic possession. Her case was documented by town minister Samuel Willard and Cotton Mather, a famed Puritan minister, in his Magnolia Christi Americana, Book 6, Chapter 7. Cotton Mather wrote, In the town of Groton, one Elizabeth Knapp, October 1671, was taken after a very strange manner sometimes weeping, sometimes laughing, sometimes roaring, with violent agitations, crying out, money, money. Time now for the tale of the demonic possession of Elizabeth Knapp. Elizabeth experienced possession, if that's indeed what it was, from October 30th, 1671 to January 12th, 1672, almost two and a half months. At the time, Elizabeth was a new servant in the home of Samuel Willard, the town minister, and Willard ran a very tight ship. He enforced strict puritanical law in Groton, common for the area in the time. This happened two decades before the Salem Witch Trials, which would take place just 45 miles to the east. People were expected to be pious and obey authority. People were expected to contribute to the community labor. And people, most of all, were expected to obey and fear God. William had a reputation for fire and brimstone sermons about damnation and obedience. He preached to the youth that they should be careful because, quote, Although God is ready to receive them, the devil is ready to endeavor them. In Groton, it felt as though the devil was always near. And perhaps in late 1671, the devil actually showed up. At that time, Elizabeth traveled back and forth from her house to the Willard house for work. When she completed her chores each evening, she returned to her parents' home at the south end of the village. On the evening of October 30th, 1671, after Elizabeth made it home, she complained of pains throughout her body. Then she grabbed her leg. Help! My leg! She grabbed her chest, my breast, finally her neck, I'm strangled. On October 31st, Halloween night, James Knapp informed the Willard family that Elizabeth was too sick to come over and work. He did not tell them it was because his daughter was complaining of phantom pains. That day, Elizabeth went down into the house's cellar and screamed. She then raced back upstairs, told her father she'd seen two shadowy apparitions, two people perhaps she didn't recognize walking around down in the cellar. Elizabeth's mother and father searched the cellar and elsewhere and couldn't find anyone in their home. As they were conducting their search, to quote Mather's account of this, James turned around and stopped short as he saw Elizabeth still standing still as a rabbit, brown eyes transfixed on a point above the turnip sack. She suddenly asked, What cheer, old man? And then from this point on, Elizabeth experienced emotional fits, laughing, crying, hysterics, screaming for hours on end. Then Elizabeth began experiencing extreme hallucinations. Or did she? She often said she saw two people walking around her, or a man floating around her bed. No one else could see these visions. Was she suffering from mental illness? 
or were spirits tormenting her and driving her mad. Elizabeth's parents grew extremely concerned, now asked Pastor Willard, Minister Willard, for help. Uh, Willard, surprisingly for Puritan times, started to take a scientific approach to things. He first called in the town doctor to cure Elizabeth. This doctor would be called in several times before any possible spiritual affliction was ever addressed. The doctor could find no explanation for what was happening. So after a few visits, Willard started to believe the symptoms were demonic in nature. He began documenting all of Elizabeth's symptoms and noticed they worsened whenever he was near. Elizabeth always had been very respectful to him, but now she seemed to despise him. And he believed it was the demon inside of her projecting its hatred through her. At night, Elizabeth began experiencing convulsive fits and self-harm. She once tried to throw herself into the fire. During some of her fits, Elizabeth would jump around and contort her body into strange and unnatural positions. It usually took three or four people to hold her down, keep her from hurting herself. During some of her fits, Elizabeth ran around the home shouting odd words and, quote, looking hideously. To quote Mather's account again, her tongue would be for many hours together drawn like a semicircle up to the roof of her mouth so that no fingers applied unto it could remove it. Six men were scarce able to hold her in some of her fits. Elizabeth often cried out, Money, money, sin, misery, misery. Then on November 2nd, 1671, Elizabeth confessed to meeting with the devil. She told Minister Willard that for the past three years, she'd met with the devil in the woods. He came to her on her walks home from work. He promised her money, eternal youth, a life of ease, the ability to travel the world. All he wanted in return was her devotion. She said she, he gave her a book of blood covenants and showed her other women's signatures, and that Elizabeth then signed the book. And now the devil wanted the soul he'd, she'd signed over to him. He tried to get her to kill herself and others, but she refused. And now one of his demons was attacking her body, leading her to her strange and disturbing behavior. Elizabeth said she began seeing visions of Satan and various demons and spirits, and that this lasted until November 28th. On that day, she said she experienced some strange fit that lasted a full 48 hours. Afterwards, she became lost inside of herself, trapped inside of some kind of catatonic state until December 8th. On the 8th, Elizabeth claimed that she was assaulted by a demonic entity several times. Throughout the month of December, the symptoms of her possession grew worse. She began to speak in a strange voice, make animal-like sounds. On December 17, 1671, Elizabeth had a brief respite from her symptoms, and her mother allowed her to go for a walk into town. She stopped at Willard's house, and when she saw the minister, a demonic entity overtook her. According to Willard, Elizabeth's tongue drew out of her mouth to an extraordinary length, and a demon began speaking from inside of her. Elizabeth's mouth never moved as the demon spoke the words. Per Mather's account, Words were also uttered from her throat sometimes when her mouth was wholly shut, and sometimes words were uttered when her mouth was wide open, but no organs of speech used therein. The demon inside Elizabeth spoke against Willard and spoke blasphemies against God. She called Willard a great black rogue who tells the people a company of lies. Willard answered her, Satan, thou art a liar and a deceiver, and God will vindicate his own truth one day. Others in the Willard household joined the minister in chanting that God had the devil in chains. Elizabeth responded, I am not Satan. I am nothing more than a pretty black boy. This is my pretty girl. I have been here a great while. Willard and the witnesses continued praying for Elizabeth. The demon inside her grew furious and growled. For all my chain, I can knock thee in the head when I please. Elizabeth collapsed eventually and people prayed over her. For the next few weeks, Elizabeth began to try to make others question Willard's authority, particularly her father. She also claimed that one of the women in the community was the cause of her possession. Per Mather, 
But this innocent woman, this accused and abused by a malicious devil, prayed earnestly with us as well for this possessed creature, whereupon coming to herself she confessed that she had been deluded by Satan and compelled by him unreasonably to think and speak evil of a good neighbor without cause. On January 10, 1672, Elizabeth met with Willard and told him that the devil now had almost complete control of her and that he was more powerful than she was. She was afraid he'd make her do something truly evil. On the 11th, she began weeping hysterically, called for Willard's help. Her fits lasted in late until late into the night. After this last fit, Elizabeth wouldn't speak again until January 15th. Willard chose to stop documenting the possession at this point. He felt there was nothing more that he could do, and he left the matter to, quote, those more learned, aged, and judicious. We can only assume that he put her family in touch with some other spiritual leader experienced in exorcisms. Willard ended his journal with notes about the validity of her possession. 1. Elizabeth's distemper was not fake on the grounds that it was not possible to fake so many symptoms. 2. Because of the length and strength of her fits, he believed them to be diabolical in nature. 3. He was convinced the devil spoke through Elizabeth because she spoke with her mouth closed, at times her throat swelled up like a balloon, and she continued talking. The voice that came from within her was not her own. Willard will go on to publish a volume of sermons titled Useful Instructions for a Professing People in Times of Great Security and Degeneracy, delivered in several sermons on solemn occasions. It was widely read in Massachusetts at the time. Willard also went on to give sermons in Salem during the witch trials. He actually tried to disprove several convictions by arguing, arguing the trials were unfair. So maybe he was a more compassionate and judicious minister than his reputation for fire and brimstone sermons once made him appear. We will never know how Elizabeth's possession got resolved, but she did get better eventually. She married a man named Samuel Scripture, and she lived the rest of her life as a wife and mother. She's almost never mentioned in any historical records from 1673 until her death in 1720. Her story is one of many stories of supposed demonic possession in the American colonies in the 1600s. There are no consistently agreed-upon psychological or otherwise scientific explanations for the high number of alleged demonic possessions in the 17th century. Many historians believe it has something to do with the strict religious environment of the time, that a popular way to rebel against that environment was through faking demonic possession. Perhaps Elizabeth felt frustrated with her position in life, and she used a claim of possession to speak out against authority with less risk of suffering severe consequences for doing so. Maybe Elizabeth was jealous of Samuel Willard. He had everything she wanted, money, power, and education, a partner, children, and world travel. Some historians believe Elizabeth had undiagnosed Huntington's disease, a selective de deterioration of movement structures inside the brain. It can cause excessive, spontaneous, irregular movements that worsen over time. The disease can lead to manic depression, memory loss, and schizophrenic symptoms. However, Huntington's disease is degenerative. There's still no cure, even a way to stop its progression now. So I highly doubt that's what it was, since she reportedly lived for many years following those episodes, got married, and raised a family. Who knows, maybe, just maybe, she really did make a deal with the devil in the woods of Massachusetts and almost ended up losing her soul. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a fun one. Yeah, a lot of those. I, um, <laughs> what gets me on these stories, and, and, and it will pull me out a little bit, like we don't do a lot of these. Yeah. Just because the language. Um, I, th I thought it was oh, good. You it was yeah, it wasn't it's, hard to follow. Well, I, I meant for horror, for me personally. When they're, when they're like, my breast, my um, leg. It's like the way they wrote back then when they documented things. It reads so old timey to me. It doesn't bother. Oh, it, funny. Well, in this story, doesn't like okay, when you do the ones at Christmas, it makes me bananas. But that's <laughs> right. like you know, seventeen hours of you 
La 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 True. la la la. And then Jimmy ran up the stairs past the barrister and spoke to his mother. La 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 mm-hmm. la la is he, what I hear. He had seen a white sheet in the atrium and ran to the li- li- library looking for his father in the laboratory. <laughs> Whatever it was. His, his <laughs> uncle worked at the gymnasium. And he what? Yeah, just like the, uh-huh. the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the cadence of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, immediately, I just have to say this. Yeah. Is it possible that she's related to, like, Elizabeth Warren as we know her today? Her, uh, her last name's Knapp. But you, but you said her mother was Elizabeth Warren Knapp. Oh, 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 oh. I don't know. Uh, it could be. Um, I mean, how? what are the odds? Like, and, and, I mean, I guess, uh, is that, like, a as common as Smith Warren? I, mean, I think it, it's pretty common. But Massachusetts, yep. a witch. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I'm kidding. If you can't take that joke, get out of here. Elizabeth Warren. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I, that was my immediate, like, lots Wait, of question marks. Isn't Elizabeth Warren from Minnesota? Well, she's a Massachusetts uh, oh, she, senator. I, I, I can't remember. All right. I don't know. Maybe. She she ran for the, the presidency. I remember her vaguely. Trump called her Pocahontas. She, cause oh, she, she I, claimed yeah. to have Native American... I th- I'm not even sure that I'm going to get this right, but I want to say that she claimed to like be able to like yeah. trace her ancestry back to the native, uh, the American Indians, and that that is not true. I do remember that now. Is that I think that's yeah. how it goes. Yeah. Regardless, mm-hmm. maybe Boston. I mean, that does, and I that just because she lives in Boston now doesn't mean that she has to be from there. You're sure, right. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah. there are, but there are a lot of like for for America at least a lot of um, you know, people whose families have lived in Massachusetts for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I got bit by something. I've had Ooh, like a crazy itch. itch over here, and then I noticed like a little lump on my arm. Um, Samuel Scripture. What a I know. fucking perfect name. I know. I, I thought that too. I was and like, I like, is that real? I know. I, I also thought that and tried to like look into it. Couldn't find any more details. But I'm like, who is named Samuel Scripture? But I mean. Eh. But then again, like you were named by the things that you could do, you know, like. Yes, yeah. John Johnny Cobblestone. But like, but, <laughs> yeah, I, but, I mean, but you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, but John Blacksmith. That happened, Smith. That, generally that happened a long time before, and then the name carried over across the Atlantic. Yeah, but but I guess maybe maybe someone for, or I guess people could change their names back then. But I'm like, yeah, I don't know how that came. I've never ever come across a Mister Scripture before. Yeah, I but I, I loved that, mm-hmm. and then I I also really. Uh, on like a same but different note, I like the connection between the possibility of mental illness and possession and weighing out like, was there something else going on with her mm-hmm. or or not? And and I bring that up because you and I have discussed that on the show pre- previously and we had somebody who was very upset that how dare we make that connection. Oh, it, it's a connection that is there and will forever be there because – you know, the symptoms of, of possession, course. if you will, are very similar to the symptoms, identical sometimes to like, for example, uh, you know, unmedicated, uh, a severe case of paranoid schizophrenia, somebody right. having a, a schizophrenic episode. Yeah. So you cannot like it, but it's like, that's just saying like, um, I don't like the skies being blue. That I, is I, so I, weird. Did we just have a telepathic <laughs> moment? Because I thought yeah. I, that's exactly what I was thinking. Exactly right. those words. The sky is blue. Yeah, that was just, weird. They're just, there is a, an obvious yeah. connection. Yeah. And I'm like. Mental illness is it's, is a, an mm-hmm. awful thing, and it comes in very many forms. And I deal with it, and you deal with it, and we we all not we all, but a lot of us do. But it's like it would be crazy to think if all of a sudden I was doing what she was doing. My my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth, but I'm still somehow speaking. Yeah, I'm having these weird phantom pains. I'm claiming to have made a deal with the devil. Like, right? You are going to wonder: Has she is something kind of? flipped in her is there a mental illness 
or yeah. is she possessed? So it's like, yep. that is not no. disrespectful, nah. rude, not putting anybody down. It's like, nope, that's an actual thing. And I would yeah. hope to God that if you were worried that I was possessed, that you would weigh out the options of like, is yeah. she ill and can we help her? Or is she possessed and can we help her? Right. And I think one of the things to look for that, you know, was harder back then than it is now, I mean, just, you know, as we advance in our knowledge as a species. Yeah. But are the, are the claims that are not related uh, to any kind of mental illness that will come up oftentimes. I, I think of immediately, and we talked about this on the recent um, bonus episode, but like um, unnatural weight. You know, mm, th- there are sometimes, mm. oftentimes with, with cases of demonic possession, there are claims of someone being unnaturally heavy. Yeah. You know, where like, um, you know, somebody who weighs 120 pounds and somebody who could easily pick up 120 pounds mm-hmm. cannot budge them from the floor. Right. That's something that has nothing to do with any type of mental affliction at yeah. all. Uh, and then the opposite can be unnatural weight where they like float up, like a levitation kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, another one that, you know, this didn't come up in this story. But is uh, being able to speak in languages that mm-hmm. you there's no way that you knew those right you know that people and then a big one is knowing things about others in the in the room like during an exorcism that m- there's no way you could know those some minister comes over and is trying to help you or trying to exercise you yeah and, th- and then you reference um. Uh, his daughter that died 20 years ago and you also reference like you could have saved her yeah. and, and maybe it's referencing like she was drowning and he was nearby mm-hmm. it's like there's no way that you could those are the things to me that really like separate possession and mental illness oh yeah or or the possibility of it being ju- just just saying that lightly yeah just well no just oh, mental yeah, yeah, illness yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, you, gotcha. Wouldn't, you wouldn't be i wouldn't like start spouting off about like your mom's dad's brother sister daughter who drowned mm-hmm. while wearing a red dress yeah because i'm mentally ill i mean i could but like yeah. if that checks out it's like oh, buh, 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 what's happening there and there's always the always the possibility that someone could have both you know i always think yeah, about those mergers somebody could be in the middle of a psychotic episode yep and if demonic possession were going with uh, the possibility of it being real, yeah. why couldn't they also have that? Well, to me, it's like, duh, of course, because you are at your weakest. If you are in the middle of any sort of mental break mm-hmm. whatsoever, whether it is just like from stress and your your body's breaking down and you, yeah. you that feeling of like, I, I can't fucking take one more thing happening. Mm-hmm. That is the beginning feeling of breaking down. Yep. You and I have both been there. It's a very terrible feeling. Yeah. And that is when it feels like if one more thing happens, you will fall apart. Well, right. if these entities, if this other world exists in the way in which we currently today as we're recording believe that it is, it's like, of course, that's their moment to sneak in there. Yep. That is that is the moment for any evil, whether of this world or another, to take advantage yeah. of you. That is when you have to be the most cautious about your friend circle of like, who's going to take advantage of me not being at my best right now? Yep. That's why we hear about like elderly people who lose their spouse, who have don't have other family to protect them. And it doesn't happen so much anymore. But like, I remember when my grandfather passed away, my grandmother would get these phone calls all the time. People trying to sell her something because mm-hmm. they believed that he had been the keeper of the money because it was how it was and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, yeah, they're taking advantage of her being in distress over losing her partner. And now they're going to try and take her money from her. And and, and she did, in fact, do some of that stupid oh, shit. Man. I know it's really sad, yeah. but that's what happened. So it's not like this is un, 
out yeah. of nowhere. Before we jump into your story, yeah, which I, I know we're pictures. going to, just a few pictures. Yeah. Now, now, these are not, uh, well, the first one is, is, I think, associated with Nap Story. Um, but these are just like some old illustrations from uh, Puritanical Era, Massachusetts. And I just love this era of like occulty illustrations. I know. It's they so creep weird. me out. So we have three of them. There's the first. I think that's kind of a cool piece of art. Mm-hmm. I, I do too. I do too. Here's the second. Looking in the mirror, and the uh-huh. mirror is not reflecting what she what she is. And then this third one, um, yep, this devil. This is uh, going into a tavern and luring people into sin. Is the devil going for a pint? The devil's why they're having those pints. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, yeah, I love that um, that that illustration style from that era. Yeah, that like line art. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. So sim- simple, but enough to you would have seen that like on propaganda photos. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, I feel like you're the most prepared with so many Layla's. What's going on over there, friend? I just thought it'd be fun to gather a little army of them. So I have, I just quickly put seven of them out here. I just like to, and I think we have many more than this. These are off to the top of our little bin oh, of gosh. squishies. Okay, well, for next week's episode, I'm going to dig up as many of them as I can. Okay. I might even like dig through the mail. We, um, we, ch- we check the mail every week, but we open everything once a month so that we can sit down, really give it the attention it deserves. We're so grateful for it that we're afraid mm-hmm. if we like hustle through it, we won't really have the chance to appreciate what we get. So there might even be more Layla's. And also, I'm just going to say, like, if anybody wants to send them in, how funny would it be if we had a desk full of Layla's one week? That's probably, what, like 100 Layla's, 200 Layla's? (laughs) Yeah. I'll start putting numbers on their backs. It would be so funny to me. (laughs) Just this, we get so many that we, like, start pinning them to the walls and Mm -hmm. there are new sound deadenings. Perfect. Oh, that would actually be so cute. Like some Logan could do that. We could get so many Layla's and he could make some sort of like cool design pattern, but they're the backdrop of the show. Yeah. Eventually we're going to like uh, redo some of this stuff. Yeah. So uh, who knows how many Layla's will be worked into the design. Yeah. That is such a cool thing. Like we don't really talk about it that often, but you know, because of the support on Patreon, it has done so many things and it allows us to like constantly upgrade equipment and stay ahead of the way things are changing and moving to, to, you know, better sound deadening. Like mm-hmm. when we did this, we didn't have a ton of money. So it's like what you guys can't see is that. There are comforters hanging from the ceiling and covering the walls. It's like, okay, well, we've, you know, put enough money aside to do the donations and to start the scholarship fund. So now it's time to like reinvest yep. in the show that you love so much to make it sound and look cooler and better yeah. as, as much as possible. Thank you. So there you have it. Uh, well, if you were uh, a Robert or an Annabelle and you listened to the bonus episode, you know that I was really sick uh, this past weekend. And I feel so good today. I feel good. like... So and your energy's way up. I can feel it. I'm like, oh, I am into this show today. Good, good, yeah. good. Haven't eaten, which we'll try next, but, <laughs> but feeling good. Oh, uh, you look good too. Ah, uh, thank you. Hmm? Appreciate that. Uh okay. Are you which Layla are you gonna actually? I'm hold gonna on start to? with the red one. Okay, red Layla. Uh well. This first story, uh, the man in the window. So it, it is accompanied by a photo at the end, which I haven't had a story with a photo in a while. Mm-hmm. So that's fun. Uh, it is all the spoopy things all rolled into one. A young couple excited to start their life. A house that they make an offer on that they get, but it just didn't feel quite right. But like, ah, it's cheap and we're young and we're trying to get started. A priest that comes over for a blessing. And then a final confirmation that... You know what, buddy? You're not crazy. You're not the only one uh, uh, seeing that. Yeah. And 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 it led me to think, like, how many things does it take for you, Dan, mm-hmm. you know, to say, like, okay, yep, 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 we're out. Or or we got to do something I, I about I just, it. I think I just have to experience it, you know? And, and it, might, it might take only one thing if mm-hmm. the thing was substantial enough. 
You know, and it would just be like, uh, am I just seeing things that I can live with or am I seeing things that I think are malevolent or those, do those things seem to be able to interact in this world in a threatening manner. Like it would take, it would be a variety of things. Okay. Yeah. And the threatening manner could uh, not necessarily be like touching me. It just like, you know, if I'm, every time I wake up, there's some horrible entity at the foot of the bed that seems menacing. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Okay. Okay. That's going to affect my (laughs) mental health substantially. Sure. Yeah. But maybe, but maybe if it's something that doesn't bother you as much or happen. I could live with it. I could cohabitate. Okay. Well then I think you're going to really like this story and the way it ebbs and flows because I, I find you to be similar to the, the storyteller. Hello, queen of the suck, suck master flex and the bad magician crew. My name is Marcus. I'm a longtime space lizard and definite lifelong creeper. I'm currently re-listening to the entire catalog of Scared to Death because I'm a sassy banter enthusiast, and I can listen to you (laughs) two go back and forth all day as I have been quite literally. A sassy banter enthusiast. That's That's a good one. The story I'm about to tell you is something that I don't like to talk about at all, actually. After listening to the episode entitled 3AM, it ripped this scab off and inspired me to tell you my story. The story begins in 2013. My soon-to-be fiancé and I bought our first house. It was a single-story rancher with three acres of land that was recently put on the market after a lengthy probate court dispute. The price of the house was an absolute steal, which should have been my first red flag, but I was a chimp in my late 20s who, up until that point, had always lived in shitty apartments. I should note that when we went through our initial walkthrough, both myself and my fiancé didn't like the feeling of the basement. Despite this, we put in an offer and soon we found out it had been accepted. Before the closing day, we decided to go to the property when no one else was around to walk around and really get a feel for the yard and how much work we'd need to do. The previous owner was an elderly woman who liked to collect random yard trinkets and put them all over the yard. They were cute, but they were also ugly. We were walking around the back of the house when we both stopped in our tracks and looked at each other. We could hear loud banging coming from inside the house from the yard. It was the sound of doors slamming. Upon closing, I took a picture of the house to show it to my grandfather so I could show show him that I was now a homeowner. (laughs) After visiting with him that night, I was looking through the photos I took and thought to myself, how crazy would it be if there was a face or an apparition in one of these photos? I zoomed into one of the windows and my heart almost fell through my ass. In the left-hand window, there was a fucking face in the window staring out at me. I showed my fiancé the photos, and for a very brown Puerto Rican woman, the color fell from her face. We moved in, and one of the first things I did was call the local Catholic church and have a priest come over and bless our home. He came in and introduced himself as Father McGregor, a white-haired but tall and sturdy old Irishman. (laughs) We began to exchange pleasantries inside the house, and he kept looking down the hallway at the room where the face had appeared in the window. Now, mind you, I hadn't shown him the picture yet. He pulled out his purple sash and and wanted to begin his prayer service and blessings, starting with that room. He opened the door and immediately began throwing holy water all over the room, saying the prayer of St. Michael in a commanding and almost thunderous voice. He then made his way around the house, saying prayers and doing his due diligence, but he especially paid close attention to the basement. We then walked outside for his departure, and I showed him the picture of the face. The formidable Irishman wasn't surprised. He didn't say it, but the look of, I fucking knew it, was written all over his face. He gave me his number and told him to call if we needed anything else. 
We moved in shortly after, and nothing really happened for a few weeks. Strange sounds here and there, but it was a new house to us, and so we ignored them. Every house does make its own unique set of noises. That all changed about a month later. After coming home from grocery shopping one day, I walked into our kitchen to find no less than 20 to 30 fat black flies resting on our bay window above the kitchen sink. They didn't move. They didn't even buzz. They did nothing. Even as I killed them by the handful, they never even moved. A week later, my fiance and I were in the basement putting together our new washer and dryer and doing general cleaning. I want to mention that at the top of the basement steps, there was a makeshift gate that locked at the top of the stairs with a padlock. It was about six feet high and a sturdy piece of plywood. It was very odd, and I couldn't stop myself from thinking, why lock it from the upstairs, and why such a tall piece of wood, unless you're trying to keep something taller, like a person, down here? The basement foundation was about six or seven feet high, which had small pockets between the floor beams. We noticed right away that there were several antique liquor bottles tucked away in each of the rafters. After counting them, there were about 30 in total. This didn't sit right for me for some reason. It was a rotten feeling in my stomach. I couldn't shake the feeling that something awful had happened down here, like someone was a violent drunk and perhaps they were locked down here for their own good or the good of everyone else. This is speculation, of course, but something in my guts told me I was right. As we were milling along with our new appliances, we were both suddenly frozen in terror. We heard heavy and deliberate footsteps coming down the hallway from the end bedroom. I ran upstairs thinking someone had broken in, but no one was there. None of the doors were open, just nothing. The footsteps started and then stopped at the end of the hallway entering our living room. Fast forward a year later, we'd gotten married and strange things would happen here and there, but we did our best to ignore them. One night, my wife was cooking dinner and I was in our bedroom on the other side of the house when we both heard this loud crash come from our dining room. I sprinted to the kitchen thinking my wife had fallen, but she was simply frozen. In our dining room, I had this giant picture of the Last Supper that I had inherited from my grandparents who had both passed by then. My dining room table was about three or four feet away from the wall where the picture had hung. I walked into the dining room and the fucking picture was face up lying across the table. The mounting nails weren't bent. It's not like they gave way from the weight of the picture. Instead, it was almost as if someone or something had pushed the picture from the back hard enough for it to fly off the wall and land several feet away face up Hmm. on the table. Neither of us said anything as I quietly hung the picture back up. Needless to say, we lost our appetites that evening. Later that same night, I woke up from a dead sleep to the sound of music playing. And not modern music, but old-time, big-band music from the 40s or 50s, very faint, coming from the basement. I sat up and looked over at my wife, who was also wide awake. Do you hear that? She whispered. I got up and walked towards the open basement door. The music stopped. I inspected the basement and nothing was out of place. Dead silence. The kind of silence where you can hear your heartbeat in your head. We went back to bed, and the moment we were about to fall asleep, the music started again. I turned on our Bluetooth speaker and played music of our own so we could drown it out and try and get some sleep. Things like this continued to happen until one day, I heard something that will haunt me forever. My wife is at work, and I had taken some PTO to fix some minor electrical problems in our home. As I was working on an outlet, 
I heard a baby shriek from the other side of the house. My blood froze. Oh my God. I stopped and stood up looking around the house. We didn't have a baby. After a few moments, I heard it again. Fuck this. I ran outside and immediately called Father McGregor. And much to my horror, he wasn't particularly surprised to hear from me. A few days later, he arrived with a few assistants. Three men, two older and one younger, came inside and got dressed in traditional Catholic priest garb. They stood in my living room and began reciting the prayer of St. Benedict, which, for those of you who don't know, is used in Catholic in the Catholic rite of exorcism. Their prayers concluded and they blessed the house, room by room, praying and chanting together whilst throwing holy water about in each room. Father McGregor told me that if he did have to come back again, a formal exorcism would be requested for my property. The activity seemed to cease after that. Occasionally sounds here and there, but nothing as bad as what we had experienced thus far. Sadly, the following year, our marriage ended. We had a lot of personal issues and the relationship dissolved. I flew to Florida later that year to see my now late mother and filled her in on the events that had taken place in that house. I showed her the picture of the face in the window and she felt uncomfortably silent. What she told me next made my blood freeze. Apparently, when I was about two or three years old, I would have night terrors. I, of course, have no recollection of this at all, so I listened intently as my mother spoke. She said I would scream in my sleep, and she would scoop me up, soaked in a cold sweat, and bring me to her bed where I would immediately calm down. She told me I'd always be screaming about the mean man who wanted to take me away. This happened on and off for months. One night, when she heard me break into hysterics, instead of turning on my light and grabbing me out of bed, she had a flashlight in hand. She scanned the room, and in the corner where my closet was, she saw the same fucking face from the window fade away in the corner. Call it the power of suggestion, call it paranoia. But I still feel like this thing isn't totally gone. I still feel someone watching me whenever I'm at my most vulnerable moments. Thanks for listening, and thanks for everything you do. I hope this terrified you as much as it does me, Marcus. And we, Man. Have a, we have a picture to accompany it. Now, I, don't, I don't think it's going to terrify me as much as Marcus because he is living with this. But that really, I mean, I got chills over here. That is a terribly creepy story. And, and just how un, how unlucky. It's like, okay, uh-huh. I, I just think in situations where it's like you can be born with, you know, severe uh, physical limitations or, you know, mental afflictions, different things. It's just luck of the draw. Sure. And now that's like a, an extra burden you have to like, you know, deal with in life. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just never really thought of like, starting life with almost like a spiritual type burden where, yeah. you know, like you're just a little kid. It's like, it's, it's not like he had done anything to invite this presence into his life. Mm-hmm. And that that presence has been following him this whole time and is still around him. Yee. I know that gives me chills. Something's probably been following you. Probably. Cause I mean, something just makes me a weirdo. Well, you're just naughty. Oh, man. I know. I'm a naughty guy. <laughs> You're a naughty oh, guy. Oh, gosh dang. Oh, my heck. Okay, <laughs> Logan, let's get that first photo up. So, do you uh, s- <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's it's not like... Oh, it, the <sighs> longer you stare at it. So, okay, now, uh, to be totally fair and totally honest and transparent, when I first opened it, I was like, meh. But then the more you stare know, the more at you it, look you're at like, it. oh boy, this is uncomfortable. And he did send it's like a, pic- a monster face. Exactly. It's like you can see like a open mouth. Uh-huh. Like a- yeah, underneath that little little bar on the window. Yeah. And then above it, right above it, the eyes and the bridge of the nose and the Ooh. forehead. 
And then the ears off to the side. I mean, you can see. I mean, yikes. Yikes. Now, Marcus did include a photo of his house, but I'm always cautious to share an actual photo of someone's current home. That's creepy. But it's just like, you know, a standard. It reminds me of the house that I grew up in. It's just like a standard. I bet he lives in like a 3, 2, 1,500 square foot ranch around a Mm -hmm. basement. Mm -hmm. Like I can, you know, it looks exactly like my childhood home, just different color. Uh and and so when you're zoomed out and you're seeing the whole house, you don't see it. But when you zoom in, it's like, oh, oh my gosh. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. And of course, like Marcus being a lifelong creeper would take a photo thinking like, probably, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, wouldn't be so cool if I saw something. Yep. Well, I bet you regret that now. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. And, you know, not to like dig into personal stuff, but like how much did that also affect his marriage? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's always a concern when things are going on in your life that are difficult challenging it's like yeah how much of it is me and my shit and how yeah. much of it is influenced by outf- outside sources right yep eek. Eek, eek 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 okay now this is the story that had me so messed up last night okay this hat man story okay okay uh it's it just a short not at all sweet tale about him showing up it's like this asshole just can't help himself i hate the hat man so much i forget how much i hate him until i get into like a particularly spoopy hat man tail and i'm like oh right he really terrifies me Mm -hmm. and he there's nothing good about him there's never like a redeeming (laughs) i'm like waiting for the day that someone's like and the hat man saved me (laughs) you know giving me like a little a little something something but uh you know uh that said i think we should just like dive right into this one because it it is oh and and as i'm telling this i just want to think about like is it is it afflicting one person or is he afflicting a neighborhood which i'd never really thought about one entity messing with a whole neighborhood which is i don't know why that's not probable it just didn't occur to me that like that could be a thing yeah yeah hello king and queen of all things spoopy (laughs) my husband and i are devout meat sacks of the suck and former peepers now turned creepers we started out cautiously listening occasionally and have now since evolved into lovers of all things horror well, yes. mostly. It's taken me a long time to work up the courage to revisit my own spooky tale as it still leaves chills and a sense of unease in its wake every time it crosses my mind. I was 18 and living with my mom, younger sister, stepdad, and occasionally my stepbrother would stay over as well. I had only just moved in with them recently, so I hadn't lived there for more than a couple of months. They lived in a small town about an hour away from where I grew up, and as it was much closer to the college I would be I would be attending, it was the most logical and most free living situation for me after finishing high school. The house was very old. It had been built in the 1920s and had undergone many additions and renovations, so it kind of gave off a feeling like it was two entirely different houses. The older portion of the house that contained the bedrooms always felt dark and oppressive to me, by, but the worst by far was the spare bedroom that my stepbrother would sleep in whenever he stayed over. Major creepy vibes in that room. In stark contrast to this, the newer portion of the house, the living room and the kitchen, was always bright, cheery, and welcoming. I had, of course, preferred to spend my time at home in there. I had felt safer there. That is, until I had the dream. It was a Friday morning, and work had been slow at my waitressing job, so I had been sent home early. I was home alone, and it was peaceful and quiet. I'd been going out a lot and hadn't been getting much sleep because, well, I was 18 and I had some partying to do. (laughs) 
I decided to take a nap to rest up before another weekend of dancing and bar hopping after work and opted for the sofa in the living room over my own bed in my room. Now, let me preface this by saying that in my dreams, I'm never in the same place that I physically am. I'm not sure if this is how it is for everyone, but that is how my dreams have always been. If I dream about being home, it's always a place that I had previously lived in, not actually the house where I'm currently asleep. This was the first sign that my dream was off. In my dream, I was asleep on the sofa and had woken up to a tapping on the living room window. I groggily got up, peeked out the curtain to see who it was, and was shocked to see that my grandmother, who'd passed away the previous year, was standing in the carport and that I initially didn't notice the the stoic expression on her face. I ran to the door, threw it open, already crying with joy and yelling my hello to her. When I reached to open the storm door, however, she appeared right outside of it, put her hand to hold it closed, and told me to stay inside. What? No! Of course I won't stay inside. I want to see you. Oh, I can't believe you're here. I miss you so much, I said, while remaining on the other side of the glass door. A small, sad smile crossed her face before becoming very, very serious. I know, my sweet girl, but you don't understand. He's trying to get in. I'm keeping him out, but you must be very careful. He's getting closer. As she spoke, a pit formed in my stomach before I could even follow her gaze up the driveway. Standing in the street, right in front of the house, was a man. Only he wasn't a man at all. He was something terrible and dark. I could feel an evil radiating from him. He was tall and thin, wearing a long coat and old dark hat. As my terror set in, he glanced up at me from beneath the brim of the hat and smiled an ominous, much-too-wide smile. Still smiling, he lifted his hand and gave a little wave. This is when I awoke, thoroughly freaked the fuck out. I grabbed the bare necessities and immediately GTFO'd for the rest of the weekend. When I did return home, my mom asked where I had been and why I hadn't even stopped by since she knew I was still passing by to go to work. Knowing that my mom was a skeptic and would have likely thought I had just been watching too much Supernatural, I told her about my dream, not really expecting a reaction. Boy, was I wrong. When I began describing the man in the hat, her face immediately paled and her eyes grew wide. She yelled for my stepdad and had me retell him the story. His expression uh, his expression grew grave and I recounted the dream and when I finished, they told me that my stepbrother had stayed over that same night. He had been shaken up the following morning, morning and told them that he dreamed of a tall, thin man in a hat that had been tapping on his window, Uh. smiling and unsettling, smiling at him. My stepbrother left that morning and said he wouldn't be coming back for quite a while. Now, my stepdad, being Native American, would typically sage and cleanse the house pretty regularly, but he had been so busy he hadn't thought to do it in a while. After the dreams, he never failed to do a monthly cleansing again, and nothing similar ever happened to us in that house. Fast forward to a year later. I started dating a guy who lived a few streets over from that house. His house had always given me the creeps, but one night I finally agreed to sleep over. I woke up in the dark bedroom, or at least I thought I woke up. I opened my eyes to see a dark figure standing at the foot of the bed. I tried to scream, to get away, to wake up my boyfriend next to me, anything, but I was unable to move and I watched in horror as the shape A tall, thin shape in a long coat and hat slowly smiled that same smile that had been haunting my thoughts for the past year. 
Then I woke up, calmly told the guy that it was nice knowing him, but no way in hell would I ever be setting foot in that house ever again and went home for another sleepless night. It's been a few years now and I have since moved out of that town. I now live with my husband and our young son way out in the sticks, but have never felt anything but bright, positive, loving energy in our home. So, even so, every night I fall asleep, I wonder if this will be the night that I see that too large smile once again. Stay spooky and please keep up the amazing work, your friend Tasha. Ta- uh, Tasia. Tasia. Yeah, the, the, um, the first part of that story is the part that really like creeped me out where um, her stepbrother also having a very similar experience, um, like like this thing was just in the in the area and able to invade dreams. I, I, I'm fascinated with those kind of things where people having a similar nightmare at a similar time, mm-hmm. seeing like the same kind of apparition, uh, just the, the, thinking about the possibility that there are some kind of uh, creatures, spirits, whatever, um, uh, trying to think of a different word for apparition, mm-hmm. but but that can, that can invade, like, maybe not to show up in our waking life, mm-hmm. but that can somehow sneak into our dreams. Yeah. That's a weird possibility to think about. Yeah, because I mean, it's like, I guess. Entities, uh, that's what I was trying to think. Like shared dreams? Is that a thing? Or just that or just that a thing could bounce from one dream to the next. Like what if there's mm-hmm. some kind of entity that can like, yeah, that can truly just like manifest itself inside of your subconscious mind or inside of your dreams. And again, the example I always use is because it's, you know, uh, from my childhood, mm-hmm. uh, Freddy Krueger. You know, yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah. that was his his thing. That was his M.O. Mm-hmm. And then this last thing I want to share is is less of a story and more of just like somebody sent this in to Time Suck and yeah. Dan shared it with me and it's just this is what we mentioned at the at the start where it's like unless this guy is doing a weird joke that he didn't even know this was gonna get read on the show which makes no sense like there's no motive for no, him to lie about this no and that we can figure out no and i'll read you the email he sends in dan yeah. i'm a huge time suck fan my wife fucking hates both of us for my now constant <laughs> russian impressions which i discovered i'm amazing at thanks good, to you good for you you're doing very very good in fact i've never uh i've never been into podcasts and actually still don't care for any others but one day i was getting a tattoo and my artist threw on the bloody ben episode and we fucking died i've since listened to every episode and now impatiently wait for mondays yes i have a lot i'd like to write but i'm writing in to share some ghost photos with you i haven't gotten into scared to death but given the paranormal sucks you've done and the cult of the curious i figured you'd appreciate these some context the photo was taken by myself i was 13 at the time the year is 1995 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was using the latest in technological advances in a Kodak disposable wind-up camera. Oh, I had several. Oh, man, didn't we all? Mm-hmm. You have to get doubles just in case you want to trade with your friends. <laughs> in the photo working is my dad. We were at our family cabin in Boulevard, New York, rebuilding the front porch to satisfy insurance requirements on the mortgage transfer after my grandfather passed away, and the mm. photo was proof of work. As you can see, there is no porch. The door in the photo is the only entrance and exit to the cabin. Our surprise weeks later, when my mom picked up the photos, was the person in the screen door. When she And when she asked us who was at the cabin, of course we said no one. No one else was at the cabin with us that weekend. No one stopped by. No one slipped in unnoticed. The very clear figure of a man in a white t-shirt, blue jeans, and a cigarette in hand resembles only one person, my grandfather. He wore white tees and blue jeans like it was the only option ever made, and he was the only person ever allowed to smoke in the cabin. He had passed away there a month earlier. 
oh my God, I just scared the living daylights out of myself. I had a crystal in my lap and it just yeah. fell down the blanket. So I just felt this like, duh, 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 duh. <laughs> and then out of the corner of my eye, I saw something slide. Yeah, yeah. Sweet mother of Jesus. <laughs> um, he had passed away there a month earlier and we spread his ashes in the mountains above there the week before. I'd never, uh, I never had any sensations, encounters, or reasons of proof of ghosts before or since, and still not even really sure about ghosts or paranormal entities. With all the fake photos and stories, I wish we had the negatives or some accompanying evidence if such a thing were to exist. We did have the original photo brought to a photo investigator back then that blew the original image up, uh, and to his shock, there is a man in color, clear as day, right up until his head, which is totally missing. In place of his... Uh, in place of his head, he discovered what appeared to be smudges of numerous faint images of agonized, contorted faces and swirls. Always has been eerie, even 25 years later. I figured you'd appreciate it. I've never shared this photo, and I even had to go dig it up. <laughs> Your buffalo meat sack, Tony. And shout out to Matt at Carl's Tattoo for spreading the suck to me. And now for the craziest picture yeah, ever. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. There is someone in that fucking door. I mean, it doesn't even look like a ghost. Um, no. it, it, it just looks like um, there's just a dude in the door, but yeah, and then the head is either cut off or in shadow. But well, It's like a poorly framed photo. It's like you took yeah. a picture and you didn't take a picture of the whole door. That's what it like made me think. And, and it is this thing where I'm... Uh, like sometimes, okay, sometimes in pictures, you know, like like in these situations, like, oh, there's a face in the window, whatever. I mean, that last one was actually pretty obviously a face. Yeah. But a lot of times it's like, oh, trick of the light mm -hmm. or it's like, well, maybe, but maybe kind of some kind of like a, a, a artifact that got like stuck yeah, onto yeah. the film or whatever. I mean, that's there's a dude in the door. There's a dude. And then, Logan, if you'll go to the second one, it's just a wide of it. But it's like, it's just, he's still, you know, it's yeah. like, what the hell? And that photo will be, at, again, uh, Scared to Death Podcast, Instagram, and, and Facebook if you want to, like, pause where you're listening or just pull it up as you're listening so you can see what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it is like and, – and I understand the nature of the photo as well from just, like, this itty-bitty, teeny-tiny brief stint in real estate that I did. You do have to show proof of work being huh. done. You Like, in this kind of instance, I'm sure it was, like, in order for his family to assume this property. It's yeah. like, well, the property isn't safe. It's not inhabitable. Like, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So – you know, he said there was no porch. Okay, so that's like a, you know, an insurance problem. So you have, Crazy. so here's his dad doing the work. You're, he's not even trying to capture something. I think that's why it like blew my mind so much is that the intention was not to get some sort of, oh, wouldn't it be cool if grandpa was still here? Like, and it doesn't sound like when he was taking the picture, he knew he was really seeing it. So I don't no, know. No, it or wasn't noticed until, it. Yeah, he, did, so he had, to get, he had to develop later. Right. It wasn't until they got the actual prints. Weird. So wild, cool, and interesting. And <laughs> again, thanks, Tony. Yeah, thank I, you. I hope you listen to at least this episode so you can hear us talk about it. I mean, you could just tell him on uh, Time Suck to pop on over here and catch Head episode over. 149. Yeah. Oh, it, it really, the first, I, I got really upset looking at the first time I was like, <gasps> I just slammed my computer down. <laughs> I was so freaked out. What a fun show today. What a fun Show today, Dan. I'm do you, back. Do you, you're back. Do you want to do um, your Annabelle shout-outs first or me? I'll do my Annabelles. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we'd like to thank the following Annabelles for supporting us on Patreon and allowing us to make the donations that we do get to make every month. They're so impactful and it's so meaningful. Courtney Wind, Eric Ringer, Jesse, Stephen Fox, Javier Montano, Dalton Bashirs, Amber Nickel, Danielle Long, Cor ooh, Korama, Koramaya, Leal, Carrie Wolfgang, Tara Wellwood, 
Sadie, Douglas John Brill, Colin Kneef, Marissa Osinga, Sarah Ellison, Christy, Karsten Simmons, Gitiana Doherty, Christopher Harris, Courtney C., Raven Rupel. That's a fun name. Raven Rupel. Mm -hmm. I like it. Brian Solis, Shira Raymond, John, and uh, Theirdra? Theirdra? Is it Teardra? Even though it's T-H. Teardra Hayes. Theardra Hayes. I bet it's Teardra. Yeah. Yes. It sounds right. Mm-hmm. It's a cool name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are those your, are those your Annabelle's? Yes. Okay. Uh, I would like to thank the following Annabelle's. Cimarron King and Jared Allstott. Uh, Gonzalo uh, Aparicio. Haley Goodwin. Arpaccio? Arpaccio, uh, perhaps? Or Aparicio? Aparicio? Yeah, Aparicio. Uh, Haley Goodwin. Eleanor Armstrong. <laughs> Suck Me Sideways. Nice. Nice. Uh, Ashley Palencia. Jonathan Velasquez, Melina Filion, or Filion, uh, Michael Toole, Wyatt Glover, Jessica Long, Anna Bergeron, Nicole Wickham, Atria and Bob, Bobby Skinner, Peter McHugh, Rashid Morris, Tiffany Parker, Tierra Burns, Liseth Lucas, Bojangles Secret Lover. Nice times like reference. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Chelsea Heiser. Sylvia Vallejo, Aaron Arnold, and Jerry Ann Gibson. Very nice. There were some tricky names this week. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I feel, in my mind at least, I feel like I'm getting better at names. I might not be. I some might week- just be getting more confident in mispronouncing names. <laughs> some weeks I'm like, I got this. Yeah. And other weeks I go, nope. And I just, you know, struggle through. I like the variety. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, just a few spoopy shout outs. Yeah. Uh, to Taryn from your mom, Joe. Olive juice, you'll know what that means. Um, oh, this is very sweet. Rest in peace, mom, Jackie Bennett from your son, Douglas. So sad. Sending our love to yeah. you. Uh, to Bill and Deidre from an anonymous friend, congrats on your marriage, you amazing meat sacks. To, to Patty from Pickle, I see you. Patty and Pickle. God, that's pretty funny. <laughs> like, I, if I remember correctly, they're like besties at work. And funny. I think they like do like weird things like listening to it and then like creeping up on one another. Love it. And this is another great one. To Hunno from Poobut. <laughs> I love you. You're my very best friend and you are stuck with me. Oh, that's pretty that's cute. Awesome. Poobut. Puba, uh, that is our show for this week. Thanks for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Um, often our favorite part of the show. Uh, you can email us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith, Liz Hernandez for the work on social media. Uh, to Logan again for running badmagicmerch.com. Thanks to Logan for producing and directing today. Woohoo! Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation. Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. And to book editor Drew Atana for polishing and preparing listener stories for book number three, which is almost here. Get those no, pre-orders. It, it, I mean. Yeah, you get those orders in. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I meant almost like in hand. Got it. I was like, what are you talking about? They're on sale right now. Right now. Don't uh, lie. Uh, thanks to uh, Sophie Evans for finding the first story I told today and Olivia Lee for finding the second. Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you want to hear and watch us. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want more content at Scared to Death Podcast. And we have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers. Get in there. Uh, if you don't want to hear more ads, if you want monthly bonus episodes, check out our Patreon. Get the entire catalog ad-free and more. And as always, uh, greatly appreciate the reviews and ratings that continue to come in to help us find new listeners. And enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Bye! If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness. 
and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through, but have no home here within scare to death. Add Magic Productions. Hey everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.